Welcome to The Catch-Up, a podcast where we bridge psychology, linguistics, and mythology to explore the nature of our mind. I'm Neil. And I'm Melissa. I'm a linguist and author with a concentration in discourse analysis. I also study and write about applied mythology and its effects on our ability to communicate with ourselves and others. And I'm a trained psychotherapist with 10 plus years of experience, and I write about the myths we all have in our mind and their effects on our everyday behavior. This podcast brings together our respective fields so we can see what goes on in our minds, both socially and personally, so we can communicate our way through any experience with understanding. Let's catch up. The question is, who knows their analogies better than you? I don't know your analogies better than you. I know my mind. Do you know yours? I think that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to try to figure out how you can know your mind even better by the pictures you paint, meaning the analogies you use, metaphors you use, your artistic speech. And mostly what we mean is the non-literal figurative ways of talking. So knowing your non-literal language that you use for yourself, about yourself, within yourself, really helps to elucidate sort of those corners of your mind that you might not always consciously have access to. And they really bring to light how you see yourself, how you see your role in your community, and they help outline your language use, and what it says about your mindsets. The nooks and crannies. There's a metaphor. The nooks and crannies of one's mind. Yeah, yeah. But best thing about it, I guess, is there's always a door you can go through to explore this better. uh, Let's call it a ladder. There's our cats. They're climbing the ladder in the room right now. There's always a way you can better understand by clicking out, changing your lens, and getting meta with it. So one thing to take note of when we're discussing non-literal language is kind of what are the pictures in your mind's eye of yourself, about yourself, surrounding yourself, right? Yep. So consider your upbringing in your community. What are the pictures you got from your upbringing, from your family, from your community, from your church, from your friends? How do you picture yourself as fitting in do you see yourself as a comedian, as a book nerd, as a quiet hermit? I don't know. I'm running out of examples here. All of those bring images to mind. I literally thought about a hermit. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, you, what are your pictures? How do you describe it? Why do you have those pictures? Is it because someone else told you that's what you are? Or is it because that's how you feel? Ta-da. I think that's key. Absolutely. Because it's all mirroring. You're holding up a mirror or a frame. You're trying to paint a picture. A lot of people are acting in public, whereas they're very different in private. Or they're trying to cover up their insecure defensive ways in their own way. And you'll see that in the way they speak. Um, I would call it like their insecure speech versus their secure speech. And so when you're talking about your pictures of yourself, not only acknowledge okay, I know people have told me this versus this is how I feel. Acknowledge that, understand those patterns and those relationships, but also 
you know, like if you go to a Catholic church, let's say, maybe you picture yourself as being a religious person and then you picture the religion you partook in growing up or still partake in. And then if you're Catholic, let's use that as an example. Maybe you picture the crucifix kind of a thing. Picture how that plays into your life and your behaviors. Does it come up other times other when you're thinking about your religion? Does your role in your friend group, if you're the comedian, does that come up and when you're at work or when you're with your family or when you're driving in the car? Do you find yourself feeling like you have to be funny because you have this picture of yourself? How does it affect the way you behave then? How does it affect the way you communicate? The pictures are important because they play out in your descriptions of yourself and how you behave. And I think it's worth noting that in a lot of kind of spirituality areas, religious areas, institutions, there's so many metaphors packed into every sentence, every description of how things should be. Whereas really what they're doing is using figments of previous people's minds to inform their current decision-making or understanding and conceptualization of themselves in the world. And religions themselves can play huge roles, which is why we brought it up in several episodes, because they play a significant role a lot of times for people growing up, and they can play a significant role even if you didn't grow up in a religion. You know, not being in the religion can be really, what's the word I'm looking significant. It has an influence. It has an influence. But they also come with a lot of pictures. At a lot of times, those pictures pop up when you're thinking about the way you were raised in the religion. And they also are our community myths. They're our cultural myths, the kind of rules we abide by as a society. Joseph Campbell was asked once something like, is he an atheist? And his response was, I don't think I could be an atheist believing in as many religions as I believe in. Because he studied them and he studied what their metaphors were and what their pictures were and what their stories were. And there are so many overlaps that he deduced that they had to say something about the human condition rather than just being right or wrong. And so these things play a very significant role in how humans see themselves and how they behave in the world and how they relate to people in their society. And it's a, it's a defense mechanism, religion is. It helps people feel soothed, safe, secure in society. It also doesn't help a lot of people. And it's very okay to be atheist, I think. Not people don't think that. But the idea is we got to be mindful of these are pictures being painted by groups. They're excluding some people, including others. How can we tweak that so that we can... You hear people talking about inclusivity and inclusiveness now. Really what we need is to paint better pictures that include all categories of people, thought, etc., that doesn't say, get out, or you're all wrong, but says, well, that's not being helpful right now. Here's how we can be more helpful with our analogies to help them understand where we got to go together. And Neil and I kind of look at religions as myth, cultural myth, like I mentioned. That doesn't mean, oh, it's a myth, as an opposite of true. That means it's the myth of that society. It is the larger overarching illustration of what it means to be human that kind of allows you to have a compass for how to see life and death and how to move in the world. And with that comes 
language use, which is why it's important to look at these. So we have uh, very religious family members, for example, and always their main role in conversation is never take the Lord's name in vain, right? So they have rules about what language not to use, but then they have prayers and things that outline very specific language to use in certain circumstances, whether that be a prayer for a meal or a prayer for a wedding, for love, Bible verses to kind of recite and memorize for certain occasions. So language use plays into things. That probably plays into whether or not you cuss and how often you cuss. It plays into the imagery that you abide by in the religion, whether that's Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic. That's why these religions, that's why we just for context, I guess, just sort of bring them up so often is because they play huge, huge roles on our mindsets and our language use in our communities. But obviously there are also other factors at play. Well, so all we're really talking about is imagery. And I think with non-literal speech, a lot gets lost in translation when people don't understand how many metaphors are embedded in just general language use. There are certain phrases that turn people away or their mind gets turned off because they can't see it or they don't want to see it. We're talking about mind masking. So what if we found better ways to paint pictures and say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is this interpretation making sense? And that's the beauty of art. It's all projection. It's all also protection of certain ideas, certain norms as we were talking about last episode, so that people understand, listen, most of us are just trying to get forward with our life out ahead of whatever survival issues might occur. Then there are groups that are using symbols to perpetuate hate, propagate their antisocial ideas. Yeah, that's, well, that's con artistry. That's antisocial. That's not us, but that's people. So what's a what's a type of art that you've experienced that's affected your non-literal language about yourself or within yourself? I would say any type of wordplay. Music seems to hit a lot of people, especially me the most. Look at the artist that kind of hits your frequency and what types of tones and types of musics open you up. My favorite composer and my favorite song is... Bruno Coulet's end credits in the movie Coraline. It's a Tim Burton movie. And this song sounds like it should have words that I recognize, but I don't. It feels like I should be able to sing along, but I have no idea what the words are. And so it's really cool, and I actually ended up trying to find his email because I, I knew he was French, but the words didn't sound French, and I looked it up on discussion boards, and I couldn't find anybody else who recognized the words. So I actually found his email and emailed him, and one of his colleagues emailed back, and I said, what language is this? I must know. It's the best song. And she said it was onomatopoeic, and that was the best thing. I just thought something that sounds like a language that's supposed to be onomatopoeia for the situation of the movie, pretty much for the movie as a whole, because it's the end credits of the movie. The movie's done. It's finished. 
And so music is huge. Art is huge for understanding the non-literal language that expresses emotion and that expresses imagery within yourself. I think you're, what you're doing in life is trying to find the right tune, tone, rhythm that helps you keep going. So what I've, a lot of people find this, they listen to certain types of music, it opens them up, they're more productive, they're striking a corrective current in their own frequency, and makes life more beautiful, artistic, to just do that as opposed to the dissonance and the lack of art is what causes so much damming up of our progress. I think you see things in in our history, people were book burning, people were hating certain types of music for its blasphemy, witch hunts, blah, blah, blah. Like those, that artistic speech is information that is educating us on, well, that's what's going on in that person's mind, or this is how this person is being viewed by a group, but that doesn't mean it's literally true. Again, they're using metaphors and analogies to explain how they feel toward that situation. It's all information to take into account and use that data to educate how you are. And metaphors are everywhere. You can't actually get away from them. Things like, that's a waste of time, that's a metaphor. Time is not a tangible thing. It can't be wasted, spent, passed. It's not something you can hold in your hand and, and do that with or something that's linked to a debit card that you can do that with. We reify, meaning kind of make it more concrete, time in order to talk about it because it's a human concept that has no place outside of the limitations of our mind as the human condition. So metaphors are everywhere. And so if you're talking to yourself or thinking about yourself or you know whatever self-dialogue looks for you in any given moment, you're using metaphors, guaranteed, or analogies, guaranteed, and there are images that come along with all of this. They explain feeling, they explain intuition. And think about your metaphors with your moods. If you're sad, you're feeling down. That's a directional metaphor. If you're happy, you're up. Things like that, they play into how we behave, because if you're feeling sad, you're feeling down, you're more likely to slouch. You're more likely to have downward movements. Cast your gaze downward. If you're happy, you're more likely to have an erect posture, look upward, make eye contact, because that's up. So metaphors absolutely affect the way we visualize our experiences and ourselves in any given moment, and then they affect the way we talk. They affect our mindset as we go about our days. I think the beauty of having fun with it is it, it opens up your nervous system. I even notice with certain people when they're using too much rigid, harsh tones and they're not allowing their stream of consciousness out, they're kind of protecting themselves from whatever, you can see the disruption, the incongruence that's occurring. You can see in their health they have problems with certain things like their heart, like their sugar levels, etc., that are direct results coming as a result of their lack of artistic living, thinking, speaking, relating. 
This is why miscommunications happen so often. And so it's also good to reflect on, I know we kind of have hit this home in past episodes, but reflect on the language that you were given growing up. What words were allowed? What words weren't allowed? Why are they language that needs to be not necessarily even used, but just brought back into awareness in order to understand yourself, society, your nation, the world overall? Was it helpful to have it removed from your vocabulary? Is it still helpful to have it continue to be removed? It's important to look at that language and understand, okay, here I am, here's how I see myself, here's how I talk about myself. I think this is one of the reasons why, as a collective, those of us that are frustrated with things like capitalism, like prosperity myth, is that we're not seeing enough art intertwined in that, that we've gotten our metaphors away from the earth and sustainability, and now we need to get them back in desperately in order to help people understand, no, this has to be our first priority. We have to definitely change our ways here so that we can stay sustainable there. This is not about using up all the resources we can anymore. We have to stop overusing so that we can stabilize. And non-literal language, absolutely, as I've already said, plays into myths, plays into kind of those macro mythologies as well as the micro myths of everyone's mind. So what's helpful to do, what I've found and I think Neil has found helpful to do when exercising your non-literal brain and your non-literal language awareness within yourself is to look at stories you're drawn to. Look at the protagonists and the antagonists. Who do you relate to? Why? Do you compare yourself to them? Do you picture them and yourself in their shoes? And again, why? Ask yourself what your comparisons are and what your hypothetical stories are because that'll the stories you relate to whether fiction or religious or non-fiction whatever they will play into your perceived storyline about yourself in your mindset and when you talk internally you have those self-dialogues usually people are using and writing stories to work something out it magnetizes people to where they need to go, what they need to do. So those stories can show you a lot if you just click out and see, well, why am I going toward this category of story so much? There's a reason why recently trilogies about female heroes yep. have entered the collective consciousness. For whatever reason, authors and readers are drawn toward the rise of female, like physical empowerment, female warriors, female fighters, that have the ability to sway the trajectory of their society. Triss in the Divergent series, Katniss in the Hunger Games, whether you loved it or hate it, Bella in Twilight. Mm -hmm. All of their, you know, groups familial groups and kind of their immediately surrounding community were affected by their behaviors and they ended up finding themselves and becoming strong kind of leaders in the storyline. Why is that happening? Well, look at what we're training for something in those. Those writers knew we needed that. And now look at the real life hero, the Stacey Abrams, 
Oh Corey my. Bush. Oh. AOC. Rashida. All of them. They're powerhouses. Ilhan. Yeah. And that's a metaphor. They have so much power. They are so strong. And they're not being told that they have to do this. They're being called to do this. And we called them. And look at, we collectively, as a country, elected women to have more power. We now have a woman of color vice president. This is being recorded a few days before the scheduled inauguration uh, of Biden and Harris. But she's about to come into power. And these stories came out right before we collectively, as a country, allowed these women to come into the seats that have power, that are able to be influential in our society. And I think just, I don't like going there, but we have to imagine where we'd be if we didn't have that. What is it the the mother in... My big fat Greek wedding says, the man may be the head of the family, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. Oh, yep, and we need to let that happen. Yeah. The things that can and will change now, finally, because we're breaking through the wall that's been built, oh, it's going to be good. Now, there's going to be the opposite effect of a lot of people angry, doing the really goofy stuff in response to this, but we're transcending that. They have to come with us now, because this is the way we're going. And I think, so, the fiction stories sort of brought into our collective consciousness the rise of female empowerment. Now we have it playing out in real life. And now we're able to look back and say, oh, okay, I related to those stories. Did I use my vote? Did I use my voice to allow that collective consciousness to happen? So a lot of people in some way related to that, and it played out in real life, and there's a reason why. There's a reason why collectively we wanted the story to happen the way it is. And so it's really interesting to see the parallels between fiction world, nonfiction world, you know, all these things, these art mediums, and then the real life world. We have our collective consciousness that seems to be egging us on in ways at different points in time. And then we respond. It's almost like we know what we need. And then we have the next art form come out and tell us something. And then we go, okay, yeah, that's right. So looking at the stories and the people you relate to and how you respond to them and then how you respond and react in applied real life is super important for understanding the pictures in your head, your non-literal language, your metaphors, and the storyline that you are following. And I love that. How about this? Remind yourself that you can create stories yourself. I mean, a lot of people that are listening, we hope you artists uh, will get something from this. Know that whatever's coming up in you is our collective consciousness, and we need your frame so that we can mirror that back. And so the beauty of creating metaphors, analogies, etc., to fit scenarios that we need them to fit into is we're teasing out the problems so that we can evolve to a point, kind of lure ourselves to the point where we're actually making progress, literally, by using figurative language and art. And part of the reason this podcast, it's obviously called The Catch-Up. Part of the reason we did that was because, A, when we talk, we're catching up, right? But also because Neil and I are interested in sort of the mythology of it all. What we've realized is that 
when you start paying attention to the myths of your mind and or the myths that dictate kind of the way you see the world, you are playing catch-up. The myth plays out, and then you play out your behaviors, right? It, there's a sort of catching up to do. Just like the stories I mentioned, the female empowerment, they came first, and then we started really putting more power and more emphasis on the females that have more power in our society. We're catching up to those stories that we knew were already there. And it's the same thing. We've seen it with our clients in our business. Tem Meal. They have this language they use, and then we come in and we provide additional insights and things and new ways to look at it. And then there's a sort of catching up, like, okay, that's how I'm coming off and I want to go with that, or that's how I'm coming off and I need to reorient somehow in other ways, whatever the case may be. So there's a catching up between the things you know are there, but don't know you know are there. Think about like standing behind a group of trees and you can't see past them yet, but you, you know where you're going. Maybe you've already gone past those trees before. But metaphors and analogies teach you how to either go around the trees, be one with the trees, or go up above, or go below. You, I mean, the roots are important too. So knowing the 360 view helps you pitch out further into the myth. And then I think what we've found is our dreams tend to throw metaphors our way so that we can catch them and use them and then toss them out in front of us, chase it down toss it out in front of you. So that's, dreams are trying to entice you into whatever direction you need to be going because it gets you out in front of stuff. And we very much have spectrums of literality built into our minds already. Joseph Campbell sort of talks about this. So he talks about religions as metaphors for the way we live our life, right? And I talk about this in my book. So people like Joseph Campbell, they see religions as a metaphor. And they say, okay, so the rebirth of Jesus might not have happened actually in a history book, but it happened in that humanity had a rebirth. An individual had a kind of rebirth. They transcended old patterns in some way. Someone who abides by that religion to a T will say, no, it actually happened. The thing is, if we all use the language of that religion or that belief system, the language is the same because metaphors are very literal in image saturated. So what happens is we have two groups of people using the same language saying, yes, there was a rebirth. And they get mad at each other for saying, yeah, but you actually believe it and you actually don't actually believe it. So what it is is it's an argument over the mindset, which we can't control in everyday life anyway. And so when you're looking at your own non-literal language, understand how wide your own literality spectrum is. Where do you fall on it? Where are your own boundaries? Where do you say, I can't have a conversation with someone who goes past this end or that end? And think about the conversations you want to have and are already having with others and how those conversations can help or hinder your progressions in life, so to speak. Absolutely. You tell me I have to talk about my book on here, so I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> talk about it talk about it we like i like talking about her book you'll notice this and i like not and then she likes talking about <laughs> mine and i like not but i'll try because i said i would try so no say it more enthusiastic your myth of mind is that it, yeah. it, your personal myth of mind is that your book is not as good as my book and i have the Correct. same one about mine 
So be enthusiastic. Let me throw this out. Okay, there. we're gonna Help. clap for Neil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So throw this out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so that's an incorrective myth I have. I still am insecure about my book, but it's getting there now. Volume two is almost done, so I'm on a corrective path. I can tell. I'm already feeling better. I'm feeling more confident with it. But I have to notice the metaphors that are showing up in my dreams that are telling me to keep being okay with believing in it. So before I was having dreams about typewriters a lot. Obviously a typewriter is something a human invented to put down written word. And what I was learning was I was editing myself so much before that I was basically showing myself a typewriter so I could say, stop editing so much, trust the ink that you're putting down, even though it's digital, and go with it. Allow it to just be printed and, and publish. And it's been a different experience now that I've used that versus before. There was a lot of, I was disconnected from the locus of control where the written word was coming out, for instance. I found myself driving around a lot, looking for somewhere to go that I could talk about what I needed to talk about. I was visiting certain groups, learning about their stuff, but I wasn't writing. And then once that typewriter showed up, I actually noticed a physiology change, a psychology change, which changed my myth trajectory. And now I'm getting to a point where it's like, all right, I've, I found a groove. But had I not paid attention to that or written it down, I wouldn't know where to go. I would intuitively know maybe, and maybe still find it, oh, there it is. But had I not literally said, that's a metaphor, use it, I'd be in a different place. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and you're even using metaphors as you talk about finding your groove. Yep. That's a metaphor, and it implies kind of security. You found your trajectory, your path. And that plays into your newfound mindset, your corrective mindset. And it's important to note that once you notice your literal language, like finding your groove or saying something like I'm wandering around looking for my groove, that plays into your mindset and that'll play into your language and your confidence level. I'm not super great at talking about my own book, but I'm practicing language use where I talk about it and I don't think about how self-conscious I am. I just talk and kind of disassociate a little and then afterward I go, well, I hope I sounded okay kind of a thing. Yep. And so it absolutely takes practice of disassociating from the incorrective emotions that disallow your progress mm -hmm. versus getting in touch with the corrective emotions and feelings that allow for progress. And with that comes language change and with that comes mindset change and so once you start doing these and putting these things into practice once you reorient your metaphors toward more corrective places go from wandering to being in a groove i mean you'll go places man absolutely and consider this if if you're not too fond of feedback yet you can learn how to become fond of feedback now i think enjoy the critiques enjoy the people that really beat you up as much as hard as it can be do a deep dive why are people saying this about my work my thoughts my whatever and then that can inform you of how you can make some tweaks some people are projecting their own stuff some people are telling you no this is what i think would be better and you can go well how about that i hadn't even thought about that go with it 
And so it's kind of coaching yourself to be okay with taking the risk because you know most of the time that worst case scenario doesn't happen. In fact, we're just delaying the inevitable that is our progress if we don't just let go. And I mean, last episode, we had a small discussion about, I was giving an example about maybe you're someone who loathes sports and my emphasis on loathing sports is a projection. I do not like sports. Later, Neil brought up being teammates on something and I kind of schluffed it off. But then he said, yeah, okay, you can go with this though. And I said, yeah, okay, I can kind of a thing. So it's okay to know when to say that's something I can't follow. Like, I can't follow an entire in-depth metaphor about football. But if it's a surface-level thing, sure, yeah, I'll go with you. And the, the adaptability there and that spectrumicity of it all, the literality spectrum, the spectrum of adaptability, the spectrum of being able to open up to others' ideas, even if it's not something you normally like, that's huge for transcending old ways and incorrective patterns. By modeling it to yourself or to others, you're doing it to both. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Absolutely. And people that do not like being told what to do are still listening. I had this all the time when I saw families. There was usually a few, one or two family members that did not want feedback, but your, loved giving it. In your private practice? Yeah. But if we could help them understand, hey, this is a whirlpool. We're trying to create a current that we can all kind of live in. So don't keep just banging into each other and you're going somewhere. And then you could see people unlock and they go, well, oh, I was about to do my old way thing. Never mind. Let me go with you. And it's it's beautiful. It's so cool when people do that. Mm-hmm. And look at that. You have metaphors all over the place right there. The current implying there's a flow, implying there's a direction, implying there's like a force to get behind. Yep. Water is consciousness. Is... Breaking down the metaphors is awesome. Yeah. What is it Pocahontas says? The funny thing about rivers is you never see the same river twice. How about that? Hmm. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. If you sit back and listen to it. But then a lot of people then will jump in and, and will try to control the conversation to try to get this. No. It's okay to get in there, allow it, go with it. Here we go. Now we're all benefiting. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know that they're damming up our stream of consciousness by resorting to old defenses that are incongruent. So I think the main takeaways from today are understanding your non-literal language with yourself, the pictures you compare yourself to, the picture you have gotten of yourself from others, what resonates with yourself, and what the overlaps and dissonances are. Understand the stories that surround you and how they play into your understanding of the world and how you behave in the world. And understand your spectrums and boundaries and adaptability levels. And once you have that understanding down, you'll understand yourself. And you will absolutely understand areas where you can progress and want to progress. So as you tell, I think this is one of the more important topics. We're going to embed this in obviously all the episodes, but one of the best things you can do is evolve your metaphors. Evolving your metaphors both helps you and other people see things just a little bit better, kind of opens things up, makes life more artistic, more beautiful. I think have fun with it. Yeah, knowing yourself can be fun. Knowing your language can be a fun little endeavor. Examine it, look at it, play with it, transcend it, perpetuate it, whatever you need to do. Just don't beat each other up. That's a metaphor, isn't it? 
Oh, well, depending on how it can be used. Or yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Yeah. Just go with it. Go See with it, man. That's right. Theme of today. Go with it, man. So, hopefully you caught what we were tossing, and we look forward to catching up with you soon. Absolutely. We'll catch up next time.